May I invite your attention to the 13th chapter of the gospel according to John. John 13. We'll read the first 11 verses. You may um, have forgotten that we are, that we were talking about Peter months ago, but I haven't forgotten. We've got about uh, four more times to talk about, maybe, maybe more than that, times to talk about Peter. So let's, let's wrap that up and then we'll do something else in the fall. But this is, um, John 13 is a famous passage of scripture. If you've been around church very much, you, you, you recognize this story. You've, uh, perhaps have, uh, asked a question. I get a question about this passage once or twice a year. People always wonder why it is that we don't wash feet anymore. That is as a sacrament in the church. But that's what this story is about. You'll recognize it. So you uh, stay tuned as I read it to you. Beginning at verse 1, John 13, and we'll read through verse 11. Here we go. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet not only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. This event uh, is only contained in the Gospel of John, but the day on which this event takes place is recorded by all the Gospel writers. Uh, it, it occurs on the last full day of Jesus' life. Um, the day began with Jesus sending Peter and, and John on ahead to prepare um, for the Passover meal that he would enjoy with the Twelve on this last night of his life. Um, the other gospel writers, if you, if you read them all and, and kind of add them up, they tell us that all, there, were, there were several things that took place during this event. For instance, 
it's it's mentioned in this event, but so does Luke, <clears throat> so does Mark. We're told that um, that Judas. Um, it is mentioned that Judas had already arranged to betray him. Now, again, guys, this is the last night of his life, and one of the subjects that come up, comes up, at least in the, re- the record, is um, Jesus, Judas had arranged to betray him. They had arranged six, some six days earlier to betray him. That's that's one of the items that's included in this story. Another item uh, uh, that is mentioned uh, more extensively by Luke is a very unseemly discussion that takes place among the twelve. While they're either having the meal or preparing for the meal, a discussion um, breaks out about who's the greatest? <laughs> who's the who's the big shot? Now, this is the last night of Jesus' life, and you and you watch as the twelve are jockeying for position. Guys, after three years of, of listening to Jesus teach, three years of, of watching him minister to people and, and how he conducted himself, after three years, on this last night of his life, one of the things that's discussed, or one of the things that's mentioned at least, is that one of them's going to betray him. And the rest of them are gathered around the water cooler trying to figure out who's the best. Who's the greatest? Who's the big shot? You know, what we could have had here is, um, is an outburst of indignation on the part of Jesus. Fury. Over the this inconceivable ignorance and ingratitude and downright treachery that, that sat in that room with him on that last night. I mean, after teaching you guys for three years, this is what I get? I mean, after, after all that you've seen me do, after all you've heard me teach, this is who you are? That's not what happened. That's why I, the way I would have probably handled it. But instead of that kind of paroxysm of anger, Jesus gives them a lesson, a lesson in greatness. He, uh, he gives up on words and he just acts it out. He enacts for them this, this living parable. You know, guys, I, I've often Tried to recreate this scene. You know, many of you know the term the upper room. It's this little book that, uh, you know, that I think it was the Methodist Church produced and it had a little daily book, daily devotions and it was called the upper room. And, you know, this, this last meal takes place in the upper room and that kind of business. And they, they all walk into the room and, and there's the bowl <clears throat> and there's a pitcher of water and there's a towel. Nobody goes to get it. Nobody. And uh, they knew what it was for. But nobody. Nobody makes any effort to try and wash anybody's feet. 
So in the midst of all this, Jesus, um, we're told, girds himself with a towel, takes the bowl, pours the water in it, and begins to uh, wash their feet. It really is a bummer. A last evening, uh, you would expect better, wouldn't you? From people who had spent three years with him? You would have expected. At least... Guys, I, I want to arrange this, this, uh, my comments around two headings. And, and my, my, um, my, my outline is very unimaginative. There are two great lessons in this story, I think. There is a very deep lesson here. There is a deep lesson here, then there's a deeper lesson. Those are my two points. <laughs> there's a deep lesson, and then there's a deeper lesson. So l- let me, let me show you those two things that I, that I think are contained in this story, and hopefully they'll be profitable for you. The first one, um, really, uh, it, requires that I play the role somewhat of a counselor. And you know that if you've been around here very long, when Jimmy Young starts playing the role of the counselor, we're all in trouble. So uh, just kind of do your best. Guys, um, uh, I, I want you to notice something that's stated in verse 3, because I think it's the key to this first lesson that I want to point out to you. In, in verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Rose from supper, he laid aside his thing and, and washed their feet. Guys, it's it's what is stated in verse 3 that I want to suggest to you is the key to everything about this first lesson. We're told that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he, he, um, he had nothing to prove, he uh, knew who he was, he uh, knew that it was not robbery to be equal with God, uh, that he was indeed the infinite God-man, God in flesh, and knowing that he was about to return to his father, remembering the heights from which he had stooped and the glory that awaited him, knowing these things, he served. He washed their feet. Guys, that's rich. Do, do, you, do you understand what uh, what we're being told in verse 3? It's, it's Jesus Christ knowing who he is, knowing where he's going, and as a result of that security, he is now not only willing, but able to stoop, to humble himself, and to serve. Did you see that? Hey guys, can we talk? Have, have you ever wondered why serving comes so difficult for a lot of us? I mean, um, leading, we like. Serving, not so much. Have you ever heard of the Pareto principle? Uh, it, it's a principle that works in the corporate world. I mean, if you if you're in a corporate structure, you perhaps have heard. Uh, you go to a leadership seminar, and they'll tell you about the Pareto principle. The Pareto principle is the 80-20 rule. Uh, it's a it's a kind of a standard understanding that um, 20% of your employees are going to do 80% of the work. 20% of your salesmen are going to produce 80% of the revenues. Twenty percent of your people are going to do, are going to get the job done for uh, going to twenty percent of the, the your workforce is going to get eighty percent of the job done. Now that principle applies in the church. You ever heard that? 
it's called a Pareto principle. The church didn't create it. The church is just another institution where it applies. Have you ever heard this, that, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church? You ever heard that? Oh, it's true. Why is that? Why is that, ladies and gentlemen? Have you stopped to think about it? Oh, it's because we're selfish. Yeah, we are. We are, aren't we? We're a bunch of selfish slobs, aren't we? We want people serving us. We're not particularly interested in serving anybody else. Yeah, we are. Or um, we're consumers. We want to consume. I mean, you know, and, and think about it. I mean, why did you choose Grace Evangelical Church as your church home? What were the motives? What, what was behind it? I, you know, maybe, maybe it was because they had an array of an assortment of offerings that met your consumer needs. Maybe that was it. Maybe, maybe that's the problem. But what I'm saying, guys, is that this story suggests that there's something deeper than that. Deeper than just the fact that we're selfish and we tend to be consumers. Gang, do you know what the opposite of security is? That would be insecurity. Aren't I brilliant? (laughs) See what a good counselor I am. But guys, um, according to this, it's our insecurity... That, that renders us unwilling and unable to serve. Because, you see, what I mean by insecurity is there's so much at stake. I mean, um, we, we have too much to protect. There's, there's too much of our image that is, is on the line here. And there's, there's just too many people whose applause that I desperately need to feel good about myself. Um, you know, guys, um, let's take, for instance, this Sunday school board that's uh, out. You know, did you see it when you walked in? You know, Amazing Graceland is trying to staff staff the classes where we teach our kids. Guys, could could you just pause for a minute to think about that? Do you, do you know who we're dealing with here? Your children. Do you love those little things? Sure you do. Are they valuable to you? Man, yeah. I mean, would you just about drive all around around the world to, to give them a thrill? Sure. Then tell me. Why isn't it important to you? That they be taught well. You see, guys, I think it is important to you. And I know you're selfish. You're as selfish as I am. And I know you're a consumer. And I know you're just as much of a consumer as I am. But I think there's a deeper issue. I think the real rot gut bottom of the barrel kind of thing is that we're afraid 
we're afraid that somebody is going to find out that I don't know very much. And my whole sense of insecurity cannot allow me to risk you finding out just how shallow I really am. Do you see where I get that out of this text? I mean, I'm not making, I'm just not using this as a chance. Guys, verse 3 says, look at it. Jesus, verse 3, knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was going back from God and that he had come from God and he was going back to God. Do you see? And the next word is, he rose and went and did this. Jesus, knowing who he was and knowing where he was headed, launched this service project. So what I'm saying, guys, is the reason that we find service so difficult is because, forget the selfish thing and the consumer thing, those are true too, but the fundamental reason is we don't know who we are and we don't know where we're headed. There is a, there is a basic insecurity to us that will not allow us to, um, to throw ourselves at something because we're afraid. So, so guys, I guess what I'm saying is, um, if Gracie Van is ever going to get beyond the 80-20 rule, <laughs> it's not going to be because I'm going to sit up here and guilt you, and I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to do is preach the gospel to you. And I'm going to try to tell you who you are. And I'm going to try to tell you where you're going. I'm going to try to give you enough information that you can rest. And I'm just crazy enough to believe that once that sense of spiritual security is yours. Um, service won't be so difficult for you. L- l- let me tell you a quick story. Just We have a group of women who um, every year, I think it's every year now, goes to India. They're led by Ipsukatu. There's a group of women that go to India and uh, carry on this, this massive, um, I mean, <laughs> in India, when it comes to people, everything's massive. And that's all you got is people. And they're everywhere. But this, this very large women's conference. And uh, we uh, teach and, you know, we, in fact, it's not just our church. There's a church in North Carolina and one in Texas and one. Anyway, they, these women go over and they go buy saris and they, you know, sorry, it's an Indian dress. And they, they dress in these saris and they go over there and they have this conference for women. At the, uh, and, 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 and you ask them, anyone, anyone who's ever gone over there, there's one part of that conference that's the most meaningful thing in the whole conference for them. By the way, you ladies should go. You can, we, I mean, if Jimmy Young can stand the 20 hours in the air, you can. But, um, you, um, you get over there and the most meaningful thing there is at the end of the, the conference, guess what they do? 
They washed the lady's feet. How about that? But guys, think about that. If you're a wealthy American in India and you've got 500 sweet ladies who haven't got two dimes to rub together, you kind of feel secure about who you are. Which then gives rise to an act of service. I'm saying, guys, the issue for us is that we don't know who we are and we don't know where we're going. And what's going to address that, what's going to address the service thing, the 80-20 thing, is a, is a refreshment in the gospel over and over and over again. Okay, that's, that's the lesson, that's the lesson, that's the, uh, that's the deep lesson. But let me get to the deeper lesson. Because it has to do really with the, the event itself, the scene itself. You can, you can kind of reconstruct a bit of the seating arrangement in this, in this last meal. We know this much. We know that John was seated close enough to Jesus to lean over against Jesus and whisper something into his ear. We know that. So probably John was seated next to Jesus. We also know that Judas is close enough that Jesus is able to instruct him about his upcoming betrayal. Remember, he dips the morsel and gives him, gives the, gives it. So conceivably, Jesus is seated between Peter, excuse me, between John and Judas. We don't know where Peter's seated. We do know this, however. We know that he's not close because all he can do is signal to John and and say to John, ask him, John, 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 ask him, ask him who he means. It's going to be true. Ask him. Now, gang, this event is called the washing of the disciples' feet. But uh, if you if you look at it very long, you realize that it's actually a story about washing Peter's feet. Because that's the one on whom the focus is found. It's he and Jesus who are center stage. And embedded in this little exchange between Jesus and Peter is something that is vital. Vital, gang. Vital. To our understanding of the Christian gospel. Let me see if I can explain it. Guys, during during the height of the rabbinic period... Some of the rabbis were, became some, became concerned that their disciples, uh, esteemed them a bit too highly. And so they, they, they thought that there needed to be some limits put in place between a rabbi and his student. And so they wrote this. This is found in a document called the, the, the Ketubot. Um, and it's a quote. It says, Every task that the slave does for his master will the disciple do for his teacher except one. He shall not loose the thong of his sandal. That was kind of a rabbinic teaching. And surely John the Baptist had it in his mind when he said, I am not worthy to unloose the the thong of his sandal. 
But guys, in this story, not only do we see Jesus, the teacher, reversing this whole thing, not only does he unloose a thong of the sandal, he goes on then to wash feet. And when he reaches Peter, Peter says, nope, I don't have any interest in that. Stop it. He refuses. He says, in essence, very frankly, the, the Greek construction here is, is, is similar to one that's found in 1 Corinthians 8. It's basic. What he basically says is, while the world stands, that is, you'll never do it. Not in a million years. It is a plain, point-blank refusal, which at first glance may seem to be a bit noble on, on Peter's part. It's anything but noble, though, ladies and gentlemen. In a sense, well, not in a sense, in a very real sense, what Peter is saying is, Jesus, what you're doing here is very inappropriate. I mean, um, you ought not be doing this. Um, In Peter's mind, no Messiah is supposed to be submitting and serving, not to speak of suffering. And by the end of this very long day, this Messiah will have done all three of those things. And Simon will be bitterly disappointed with Jesus. Because, you see, Jesus is failing to meet his expectations as to how a Messiah ought to act. And for a few brief moments in this story, Peter is acting like everybody else in Israel. Because... What he is saying to Jesus is, Jesus, Messiahs don't do this. This is not the way that Messiahs are supposed to act. In essence, Peter is trying to say to Jesus, Jesus, you just don't get it, do you? This this thing that you're doing is inappropriate. Of all the inappropriate things you've done, Jesus, over three years, this is the most inappropriate. When Jesus came to John the Baptist and says, I want to be baptized by you, John the Baptist says, wait a minute, that's not appropriate. And when um, when the Pharisees and the scribes uh, saw Jesus carrying on his ministry, they looked at him and they said, he is not appropriate. What are you doing? He embraces sinners. That's not appropriate. And when he reaches out to a prostitute and he touches a leper and he touches dead people, people look at him and say, that's not appropriate. And when Jesus is found in Levi's house having lunch with a room full of tax collectors, people looked at him and said, that's not appropriate. Because don't you understand? Messiahs don't do this kind of thing. This is not how a Messiah, a well-respected Messiah is supposed to act. And it's all the result, folks, of faulty thinking. It's a... It's a 
it, it, it might look like humility, but it's a false humility. It's a proud humility because what Peter is in essence saying is, Jesus, I want you to do the things that I think you should do, and I want you to do them the way that I think you should do them. I want you to save me the way I think you ought to save me. Ladies and gentlemen, you have views of a Savior, and some of them are completely wrong. Guys, um, false religion wants to write its own script as to how the Messiah ought to act. Of all the things that Peter had been asked to do in the previous three years of his walking with Jesus, this was the most difficult for him because this event kind of demonstrates that Israel's view of the Messiah is wrong. What Jesus says here to Peter is designed to correct all those wacky ideas about how a Messiah should act or how a Savior should save. Gang, um... I hope I say this charitably and gently, but I really don't care how you think the Messiah ought to save you. I really don't care about how you think the Messiah ought to work. What I do care is about how the Savior says, He's going to save his people. And if your ideas of how he's supposed to do that does not have a cross in the center of it, if your ideas about how the Savior is to save does not include some kind of dying Savior, you got it wrong. You got it all wrong. You know, Peter is is somewhat thrown off kilter here because he watches Jesus wash feet. And he ain't seen nothing yet. Because in about 16 hours, he's going to see him hanging on a cross. And that's just not the way. Israel thought their Messiah was going to save them. Guys, I want to suggest to you that what's going on here in this story is a redefining of what the Savior looks like, how he acts, and what you can expect of him. And I'm saying to you that if you think a dying Savior 
is somewhat inappropriate, then you don't understand the gospel. With one statement, Jesus turns to Peter and kind of rebukes him and says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And that's all it took. For most of us, I'm not sure that's going to be enough. But as I close, if I could just catch you in the back of your retinas and simply say this, this Messiah saves his people by dying in their place. Is that the way you understand it? Because if that's not the way you understand it, that's wrong. There's only one Messiah, and that Messiah dies so that his people can live. Is that the one you've got? Because he's the only one that exists. Our Father, I do pray that you will uh, use some piece of clarity to to um, re, uh, to adjust our thinking as to how we perceive what the Messiah is like. That we would uh, yield to what he says he's like and not what we think he ought to be like. Might what Jesus has done and might what it might who he is be at the center of our understanding. And might that understanding make us give us a sense of safety, a sense of security so that we can give ourselves in a lifetime of service. Father, for all of the faulty notions that we bring into this room each Sunday. Would you correct this very serious one? Would you correct the notion that a savior is supposed to dominate and, and to, and to rule with an iron fist? And yet this savior is the one who serves his people by dying in their place. Might the beauty of that Overtake our souls. Do that, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name.